Welcome to Rocktail Hour, an hour's worth of rockin' good time in about 15 minutes with your buddies Tim, Treg, and Dave. We're three old guys that are a testament to the fact that rock and roll keeps you young. In each Rocktail Hour, we bring you our favorite stories behind the greatest rock and roll tunes of all times and other interesting musings about the music and the rockers who've inspired us over the years. Rocktail Hour is an affiliate of Amazon.com, the online megastore that offers Earth's biggest selection. If you're going to buy stuff on Amazon anyway, it would be cool if you'd click on the link through the Rocktail Hour homepage, and then Amazon will kick back a few bucks for any of your purchases so that we can fund the free podcast. Today, Dave is going to be telling the story behind God Save the Queen by the Sex Pistols. Dave? All right. Thanks, Tim. I'm hoping that I can win over some non-Sex Pistols fans to actually get into Sex Pist- the Sex Pistols and appreciate <laughs> the album. Uh, so let's talk about the background of the band and the album, and then we'll go into the song. So the Sex Pistols were formed in 1975 in London, England. The founding members were Johnny Rotten, whose true name is John Lydon. And actually, a quick aside story, he was named Johnny Rotten because of his horrific oral hygiene, <laughs> literally. <laughs> and it's something he actually spent $22,000 in 2007 to fix his teeth, I read. No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> so his name was Johnny Rotten because of his bad hygiene. Austin Powers is laughing somewhere. Uh, you had Steve Jones on the guitar. You had Paul Cook as the drummer and Glenn Matlock as the bass player. And most people would think that the bass player for uh, the Sex Pistols is Sid Vicious, and he was. Uh, he replaced Matt Locke in early 1977, but we're going to talk a little bit more about Sid later because he's a, a really unique and interesting character in rock history. So here's the background of the Sex Pistols when they came of age, which was really kind of in the early 70s. And this is Johnny Rotten's quote on the, the environment in which they grew up. He said, quote, early 70s Britain was a very depressing place. It was completely run down. There was trash on the streets, total unemployment. Just about everybody was on strike. Everybody was brought up with an education system that told you point blank that if you came from the wrong side of the tracks, then you had no hope in hell and no career prospects at all. Out of that came the Sex Pistols and then a whole bunch of copycat wankers after us. (laughs) End quote. (laughs) Well, you can certainly uh, recognize the anger in their music coming through in, in what they were and how they were raised, the atmosphere they were raised in. Sort of sounds like mine and Treg's upbringing. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. In Salt Lake City, Utah. In Lily White, North Ogden, Utah. Yeah. In 1955. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's interesting that you mentioned that, Treg, because the background in which they grew up is the platform for their attitude, for their music, for their lyrics, and it comes across in kind of blistering fashion, as we'll explore here in a little bit. So the Sex Pistols were truly countercultural. They exhibited a true disdain for the society around them. And that continues today in terms of the way they react to things. So here's a funny example. So back in 2006, the Sex Pistols were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But because the Sex Pistols are truly anti-establishment, I think a lot of rock bands, by the way, come across as being anti-establishment, but at the end of the day... They want to be because that's the whole rock and roll attitude. Yep. But they're trying to make it in a corporate rock type of a world. 
Sex Pistols were never like that, and they've remained true to that kind of anger and, you know, kind of middle finger up at the man throughout their entire lives. So they were inducted in 2006, but the band rejected it, and Johnny Rotten went on record saying, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Museum is a, quote, piss stain. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, then. (laughs) So they didn't even show up to the induction ceremony. They just completely stiffed it. Uh, the guitar player, Steve Jones. Do they hang out with Axl Rose by any chance? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, be, I'll tell you, Axl Rose was uh, one of their protégés, if nothing else, attitude-wise and musically, actually. So as their guitar players, he said, quote, Once you want to be in a museum, rock and roll is over. It's not voted by fans. It's voted by people who induct you or others, people who are already in it, end quote. So it actually brings up an interesting point about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I don't know if you guys knew this, but since it started really inducting people in 1986, Uh the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame had a conglomerate of kind of industry insiders that were choosing who got in, and the fans had zero say. I didn't know that. Yeah, and you know that actually changed in 2013, and it's going to be changed a little bit more in 2014 where they're allowing at least a consortium of fans who I think can vote online or some they have some kind of a mechanism where fans can vote. That's going to be a component of the decision-making criteria to get into the Rock and Roll Hall oh, of Fame. Oh, that's fantastic. So that means Rat will be voted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and, <laughs> and Poison and White Snake. You leave it up to the people and that's what happens. Not to get too far off topic, but are you guys aware of the little controversy with Rush in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? No. No. Rush had been nominated time and time and time again throughout the years. Because oh, yeah. Rush has been around since the early 70s, obviously. Right. And they never got in, but they finally got in last year, which was the first year that they allowed fans to start voting. Oh, right. Ah, so I can mock, but then look what happens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So the people finally have a vote, and maybe if the people had more of a vote, uh, the Sex Pistols would have been a little more gracious in accepting a quote-unquote honor that they rejected as a piss stain. <laughs> so let's talk about the album. Now, the an- the album is called Nevermind the Bollocks. Here's the Sex Pistols. It was their only album. They also had four singles, and the album was released in October 1977. The album's widely considered and accepted as the most influential punk album in history, and it's basically a very important album in rock history, which we'll talk about here in a second. Did you say only one album? Only one album. Wow. Yeah. Boy, they've, they've had quite an impact for only having one album. That's amazing. You know, I, I think they're still garnering new fans today, and we're, yeah, going on, you know, three, four decades after the yeah. album was released. So When you say they've made an impact, what do you mean by that? Well, let's talk about it. I have a a ton of interesting stats. They had an impact on me individually. I could talk about that. But let's talk about the impact that they had on the music scene. Uh, The the album, by the way, because they were touring ahead of this album and they had such a stage presence, uh, it was widely anticipated. And so the album came out with 125,000 advanced copies having been ordered. It debuted in its first week after its release as number one on the UK album charts. Wow, that's impressive. Yep. Um, In 1987, Rolling Stone named it the second best album of the past 20 years behind only one. You want to take a guess? Thriller. In, (laughs) In 1987, so in the past 20 years, so really from 1967 to 1987, Rolling Stone had it as the second best album. Sergeant Pepper. Tim nailed it. Sergeant oh, Pepper. Excellent. 
That's right. Do you want to know how I know that? How do you know that? Because Sgt. Pepper's is the best album ever made. <laughs> I thought Dark Side of the Moon was. No. I, I think Wish You Were Here, but that's all right. Actually, if you were going to go back 20 years and, uh, well, we could do a whole podcast on the Sgt. Pepper's album, but I, I, it was totally, it was purely a guess on my part, uh, but only because I know that Sgt. Pepper's was such a critically acclaimed album. It was just widely, widely received by by critics and and music snobs. So there you go. It was a guess. That's right. And Brian Wilson, by the way, one of his the things that he wore like a badge of honor was the fact that Pet Sounds was the inspiration to Paul McCartney for writing Sgt. Pepper's. Interesting. So here you have Brian Wilson, who's a pillar of rock and roll in and of, in and of himself, Wearing like a badge of honor that Sergeant Peppers was done by him. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So Time Magazine has Nevermind the Bollocks as number 29 on their 100 greatest albums ever. And Rolling Stone has it as number 41 on their list of the 500 greatest rock albums of all time. So if you guys haven't listened to Nevermind the Bollocks, I'd recommend you, you take a gander at it. It's a critical album in terms of rock history and the influence that they had, not only on the punk scene, but on the, gen the music scene in general was huge. Uh, a Rolling Stone journalist named Charles Young said this, quote, Nevermind the Bollocks changed everything. There had never been anything like it before, and there's really never been anything like it since. The closest was probably Nirvana, a band heavily influenced by the Sex Pistols. So there you have the background. Tim, does that answer your question about some of the influence and of the album itself and how important it was and is? Sure. Are you convinced? <laughs> you don't sound like it. Well, I get in trouble every time I say I don't like a band. Treg, Treg calls me up after the podcast and yells at me. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like the, uh, the differings of opinion because I'm here crusading for bands like the Sex Pistols and Black Sabbath. <laughs> And I like to try to win hearts and minds, so that's my that's my goal here. I remember hearing the Sex Pistols in the 70s, and that was about the time that I was starting to really uh, begin to uh, recognize different bands and, and appreciate, you know, how great rock and roll was. And I think, uh, you know, I assume, Dave, you were probably very much like this yourself, but I know Treg and I, when we were younger... Um, you know, we didn't just like rock and roll music because it was popular or cool. I think we both had an appreciation for the artistry and, the, and, and of the music itself. And I just remember listening to, to some of the Sex Pistols and and not getting it. You know what I'm saying? And and so my being being young and impressionable and not getting it, it didn't it didn't sit with me like some of the others. And so I'm I'm sure if I listened to it again. You know, I'd probably recognize the artistry behind the music, but it just wasn't my cup of tea at the time. And so over the years, I've just never really had a, a real affinity for wanting to listen to it. So I probably should go back and revisit it, in fairness. I would invite you and every single Rocktail Hour listener to do that because of the influence it's had. Um, it's had that influence for a reason. And if you listen to the songs, you know, it's punk, and you might think punk is kind of the, one of the lower men on the musical totem pole, so to speak. But the catchiness of the song, the, the songs, the lyrics, the arrangements, they're all radio-worthy tunes. But moreover, really the attitude that comes across with the Sex Pistols is what resonated with me when I was a kid. 
Mm. You know, I wasn't super anti-authoritarian, but I had a, a strong streak of it running through me. And the Sex Pistols just really resonated with me uh, because they, as I said before, truly had their kind of fist up in the air and are heavily anti-establishment, always have been. And it wasn't really a marketing. I'm, well, I can't say that definitively, but, you know, a lot of bands will use that as kind of a marketing gimmick and a tool. The Sex Pistols genuinely felt that way and it's evident in their music it's been evident in their lifestyles and uh, you can read any interview with these guys and it'll come through hmm. so there's my plug but um, let's take a little quick detour and talk about Sid Vicious because Sid Vicious is notoriously known and um, as kind of a key member of the Sex Pistols he's synonymous with them and their image but if the truth truth is told he really had nothing to do with their music he replaced the original bassist, as I mentioned, in 1977, and he was a friend of Johnny Rotten. Johnny Rotten had a, a little hamster called Sid, who was named after Sid Barrett from Pink Floyd. Interesting. And Sid Vicious, the story goes, Sid Vicious was playing with this hamster, and the hamster was kind of aggressive, and it bit him. Ooh. And he said, man, that's a vicious hamster. That's, that's vicious, Sid. <laughs> and so Johnny Rotten uh, took that name and started calling his friend Sid Vicious. So the thing about Sid is that he couldn't play bass, and it wasn't even for lack of trying. He put his nose at the grindstone and really tried to be a part of the band, but he musically was inept, right? And wow. so being short on musical talent, he was heavy on charisma, and he had this perfect punk image. He had this jet black, straight hair that would get spiked up in every single direction. He was a good-looking guy, so he had a great kind of iconic punk look to him, um, real kind of a snarl to his face when he would play and stuff. So they really liked him. And from a marketing perspective, he was phenomenal. But when they actually cut the album, Nevermind the Bullocks, he only played on one track, which was their track called Bodies. And the other tracks, his bass tracks were so bad that Steve <laughs> Jones, who was a legitimate musician and a talented guitar player, had to come back and re-record all the bass tracks for the other songs. No kidding. Yeah. That's amazing. I've always uh, equated... Sid Vicious with the Sex Pistols. I had no idea that yeah. he was he was the front, you know, the the marketing, you just the it. eye candy for the band. It sounds like, huh? He was he was so iconically punk, and he lived his life that way too. Unfortunately and sadly, but uh, yeah, it was uh, it was kind of a marketing ploy more than anything to have Sid as the head guy of the band in terms of image. So anyway, what ha ended up happening to Sid, If uh, there's actually a great movie called Sid and Nancy with uh, Gary Oldman, and I can't remember who played Nancy off the top of my head, but uh, great movie, critically acclaimed movie, and it's a little biopic on Sid Vicious and the crazy life that they led, but he and Nancy, Nancy Spungen, who was his girlfriend, were hardcore heroin addicts in a huge way. He ended up killing her in a hotel room one night, or in an apartment, I think, and uh, with it was a knife, and they had some kind of an altercation, and he ended up stabbing her. He Yikes. claimed it was inadvertent. She was dead on the ground, found in a puddle of blood. Sid was put in jail, you know, made bail, came out of jail, and then his mom administered to him, I don't know, she claims it was not on purpose, but she administered a fatal dose of heroin to Sid, and he died of an overdose shortly thereafter. Wow. Yeah. Within how long of when the girlfriend died? That's a good question. It was very short after, I want to say two weeks or two months. I can't remember, but it wasn't long after. It was wow. a short period of time, and Nancy was a hemophiliac. And there is a, a theory, and I have no idea of its validity, but there was a theory that, that he was threatening her, and he accidentally 
stabbed her, but the the wound wasn't very deep. But the fact that she was a hemophiliac caused her to not be able to clot and heal, and and they and she bled to death. But you know, wow. you just you hear those stories, you know, over the years, and I don't know if that's an urban legend or not. Yeah, and I don't know if legally they ever got to the bottom of her death, but I know that Sid was initially fingered with it. Yeah, I don't think they ever did. So that's Sid Vicious and a tragic story in and of itself. Now let's move on to the song, God Save the Queen. So God Save the Queen was the fourth track on the album, and it was released as a single in May of 1977, which... Um, on purpose, coincided with the UK's celebration of Queen Elizabeth II's Silver Jubilee. And they take the the name of the national anthem and they turn it into this anti-establishment punk song, (laughs) which is just such an affront to, you know, traditional England. And then they release it on the day of Queen Elizabeth II's Silver Jubilee. So... That was on June 7, 1977, and on the day of the Jubilee itself, the band attempted to play the song from a boat that was named Queen Elizabeth II on the River Thames that was floating outside of the Palace of Westminster. And they were going to get up and play God Save the Queen and blare it from the boat at the Jubilee. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) But like all, you know stories in rock and roll and especially here in punk it didn't end well there was an altercation on the boat between the band and some of its entourage 11 people ended up getting arrested and the stunt <laughs> didn't go go as planned <laughs> so didn't quite work to their to, according to their designs sort of divine intervention it sounds like that's right <laughs> divine intervention on behalf of the queen well so in essence god saved the queen but on done So the song itself was an outright assault on the monarchy and Queen Elizabeth herself. Um, When it came out, the BBC and the Independent Broadcasting Authority in England, which is the regulator of local radio, refused to play the song. So they basically banned it. Um, Here's some lyrical highlights of the song. And, you know, for being a punk band and kind of a real street type of a band, I think throughout the album, they've got great lyrics that really um, actually have a little bit of poetry in them, if if that's even the right word. But the opening lyric is, God save the queen, a fascist regime. God save the queen, she ain't no human being. That's not the poetic part. (laughs) Very subtle, too. Yeah, yeah, she ain't no human being. Uh, There is no future in England's dreaming, which was emblematic of the punk movement. And the song ends with this repeated refrain, no future, no future, no future for you. So Johnny Rotten explained the lyrics as follows. He said, quote, you don't write God Save the Queen because you hate the English race. You write a song like that because you love them and you're fed up with them being mistreated, end quote. So again, they were vehemently antisocial, and this and this song epitomized the feeling that they had of hopelessness and detachment that really ran through the whole punk scene. Um, some other quotes from the lyrics are, God save the queen, because tourists are money, but our figurehead is not what she seems. And then he says this, I like this lyric actually, he says, when there's no future, how can there be sin? We're the flowers in the dustbin. We're the poison in the human machine. We're the future, your future. So he's basically saying, hey, society here is really taking a crap on us. Yep. We're the, we're the flowers in the dustbin, but we're also the future, so get ready. Yeah, yeah. Right, so there, there was a little bit of controversy over the uh, song itself when it came out because it obviously was uh, such an affront to the monarchy and to establishment. So it reached number one on the unofficial NME charts. NME is a UK music journal. 
but it only made number two on the official UK singles chart, which led to accusations that the song had been fixed to not reach number one. That's the, those accusations were never confirmed or denied. Um, but it's another interesting thing is that its slot in the English top 20 pop charts was at number two when it initially came out. But when the charts were officially released, the number two slot was blank. So you had this <laughs> establishment effort wow. to censor the song, both on the radio, the BBC, the regulators, and even the people running the pop charts. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, so there's another interesting side note on this. The recording of the of this song finished under a deal that they had with A&M Records, but A&M terminated their contract four days after the recording was done, and they destroyed thousands of copies of the single because it was so controversial, right? But they didn't destroy all of them, and the remaining copies are among the most valuable records ever pressed in the UK. And I don't think I don't I couldn't find out how many there are, but only a few of those copies survived. And if you have a, a copy of that single, it's worth thirteen thousand pounds today. Dang, that's wow. amazing. So again, a, a real piece of, of English music history there. So a couple accolades on the song: it was number one hundred and seventy-three on Rolling Stone's five hundred greatest songs of all time. Sounds Magazine had it as their single of the year in 1977. It was 18th on NME's list of the 150 all-time top singles. And Q Magazine ranked it number one on their list of the most exciting tunes ever and number three on their list of 100 songs that changed the world. Excellent. So that is God Save the Queen by the Sex Pistols. Wow. Well, thanks, Dave. That was an interesting podcast and certainly inspires me to go back out and, and revisit some of that music that uh, I'd forgotten about over the years. Go listen, kids. It'll do you some good. <laughs> if you don't mind a little profanity, by the way. <laughs> what would people in England feel like they were being oppressed over? They're so damn polite in, in England. How are they being oppressed? Well, again, I think if you go back to even the Black Sabbath days, in the late 60s and early 70s, economically, Britain was a mess. Mm. Everything was dead end, and you had an aristocracy there. You had the aristocracy represented by the queen and the monarchy, and yeah. I think you had a real kind of class distinction there because of the economic conditions. And so, if, like as Rotten said, if you grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, it was a death sentence to you. You had no way out. You were done. Yep, and no so they, they grew up. Yeah, no opportunity. You grew up feeling that you were relegated to the dustbin, quote-unquote, right? And it spawned a lot of great music. It really did. No, that's true. Yeah, you're right. Well, thanks, Dave. Please email us at dudes at com if you think we got it all wrong or if you have an interesting story or if you have a recommendation of a song that would be a good subject for the Rocktail Hour. If you think we're just lame, well, please keep that to yourself. Please follow us on Facebook and Twitter and rate us on iTunes. And until the next Rocktail Hour, rock on. Thank you.